Good evening. Welcome uh, to our study as we continue our look at First uh, Timothy. Um, uh, open your Bible. Uh, we're going to look at a fairly large uh, section tonight. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, and we're going to work our way all the way through chapter 3. It all goes together, so that's what we're doing. So buckle in. Uh, because it's so large, uh, I'm going to have to move, uh, I guess, fairly quickly. Uh, but to orient us, uh, really, to understand how this passage works, we have to begin with the end. Uh, so actually, I, even though I told you to turn chapter 2, turn to chapter 3. First uh, Timothy 3. Uh, we're going to first look at verses 14 and 15, and this sets what this section is about. I, Paul is speaking, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, that's a purpose statement, the reason he's giving these instructions, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Paul wants to make sure the Christians at Ephesus, and that's where Timothy is a pastor, know how the church should function. How is it necessary for people to conduct themselves in the church, which is the family of God. Faith unites us to Christ, and that faith unites us to his body, the church, the universal church, which is all believers everywhere in every time. Uh, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and all those who had faith in Christ since he was here. Our oneness in Christ and the fact that we are family should give shape to how we live together and how we treat one another. We are part of the universal church the moment we believe. At the very moment that God gives us a new nature and we believe the gospel, we are united to Christ and part of the universal church. But God expects us to be part of some local church. The local church is where we live out our Christian faith together with other believers. It's where we are challenged, where we are encouraged, where we're held accountable. We come under the authority of Christ 
as it is exercised in the structure of the local church. In Hebrews uh, 13, verse 17, uh, uh, God says uh, uh, this in reference to church elders. Obey, talking to us, church members, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We voluntarily submit ourselves to some local church in obedience to Christ. It doesn't have to be this church, but every Christian should decide where they're going to attend and what church they're under. Church authority is real. It's limited, and it's governed by Scripture, and it should be exercised with gentleness and meekness, but there is this authority. In Matthew uh, 28, Jesus says to to, to the apostles, the first elders of the church, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Christ has all authority, and he has delegated some of it to the church. How does it function? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. What? baptizing them, which is a sacrament of the church, and teaching them all I've commanded, the ministry of the word. A local church is a spiritual family, but within this local church, there is to be some sense of order, a function of Christ's authority. And so Paul begins this discussion of church order in very general sort of terms, uh, which he does beginning in verse 8 of chapter 2, and then in much more specific ways in the whole of chapter 3. In verse 15 that we just read, Paul calls the church in all its glory a pillar, uh, and the context there makes it more likely the pillar, the pillar and buttress or a foundation of truth. The church is a steward and a guardian of the word of God and the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy in Ephesus, and the imagery I think that that, those people would uh, immediately think of is... uh, the temple of Diana, which was housed in Ephesus. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so immediately they would have understood the terms pillars and buttress as those uh, 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 parts of the temple structure that protected was a guardian to the presence of Diana. But of course, Diana is no god at all. She's just a fiction. 
But we who are in the church, we the church are the temple. We are the true temple of the living God. And together, we are a dwelling place for God by his spirit. And so we are the temple, and we are servants of his word. So how do we guard the word of God? First, uh, I, I believe we guard it because as the church, we have the privilege and the responsibility of preserving God's word. From generation to generation, we hold fast to the word and defend it against all forms of false teaching that threaten uh, uh, the church and its, and its gospel since the time of Christ. Every generation. Every, there's nothing new under the sun. The false teaching that was in the church in the early centuries has just reappeared every few years. And it's up to the church to speak against that and to proclaim the gospel. And that's the second way that we guard and steward the word. We proclaim the word of God. Like the pillars of a temple, we lift Christ up. We exalt him as the only salvation for humanity. We believe the word. We live by the word because the word holds for us our true confession of faith, which is exactly the point of the next verse, verse 16. God indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, or great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. We confess this great mystery of godliness, which is Christ, hidden in ages past, but now made known in the gospel. In First Timothy, uh, the word godliness appears repeatedly, and it, it references Christian living in light of who God is and what he has done for us. Together, in the church, we are conformed to the likeness of Christ, to, to, to godliness, as we image God's character to the world. And the great mystery of this godliness is what? God with us and in us. Through the person of Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. Who he is and what he has done in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension is the source and sustenance 
of our godliness. He lived a perfect life of obedience. He died in our place for sin. He was raised victorious over sin and death. He is alive, and he is right now enthroned in glory, ruling over his kingdom. In him, we are godly. Not by our own doing, but through our faith union with him. So that by his spirit, we are made new creatures. We're the beginning of the new creation. All the things that God has promised to do, he has begun in us. We are godly and we become more godly in practice, in actuality, in living it out as we commune with Christ day by day. Think of uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces we all behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. This section in this verse ends with this hymn or creed. Uh, uh, Some believe it was um, sort of a, a baptismal creed, something that would be recited as someone was baptized. Manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It is a celebration of all that Christ has done for us as he bridges flesh and spirit, angelic hosts and earthly nations, this physical world and the heavenly glory. And because we are the new creations in Christ, we are God's promise that one day he will return. And there will be a new and perfected heaven and earth. Paul writes this section so that we know how it is necessary for people to conduct themselves in the church, how the church should function, and how individuals should behave in relationship to the church. And so, uh, turn back to chapter 2. Now that we understand what Paul is going to be doing, he's describing the church and its function, we're going to work our way through this text. Paul says, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. As we consider this verse, we have to remember that this passage does not stand alone. 
but it's connected to what Paul has already said and what he is going to say in the rest of this letter. Paul calls Timothy and the church at Ephesus to pray and worship in light of certain realities. In uh, last week, we looked at in 1 uh, Timothy 2, 1 to 7, that we are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, including kings and those in authorities, even if those kings and, and people in authority are persecuting us. Why? Because there is one God before whom we all have to face. And we all need a Savior. And the only Savior is Christ. So we pray for the salvation of those who do not know Christ because they will give an account. Everyone is separated from God and needs salvation. And so Paul addressed who and what to pray. Now he wants to talk about us. Who are we to be as we pray? Men and women who bring glory to God. That's what God wants of us. His people who live and pray and worship for his glory. Now Paul, uh, as he writes uh, this, is writing uh, God's word to us. But he's addressing very specific people at a very particular church. And in verse 8, Paul is addressing men who are either not praying at all or they're praying in the church while fighting with one another. The emphasis here, although he talks about uh, 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 praying with lifted hands, I don't think is so much on the posture of prayer, but rather the holiness of and the purity of the hearts of those who pray. In the Bible, we see all kinds of ways that people pray. Some people are kneeling, some people are bowing, other people lay prostrate while praying. The emphasis in all of that, and here, is upon the humility we have before God. And our humility before God should not allow us to pray while we're quarreling with others. Bitterness in our hearts sours our prayers. Christ died to make us one. Years ago, I remember uh, reading something by Paul Tripp, and he talked about the eternal unity of the Godhead that forever and ever and ever God lived in perfect love and unity in himself, the three persons of the Trinity. 
yet on the cross, that unity was disrupted. The unity, what a horrendous experience for Christ to be cut off from the love and the communion he had with his Father. And he did it to make us one. And so we have no business holding on to grudges and being angry with one another. You know, that's, yeah, that's far easier said than done. People can do things that hurt us. But we remember what it cost Christ to save us. So division in our worship and our prayers is wrong. Think of 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul is talking about when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, what should we do? We should examine our hearts and confess any and all sin. That's a general principle. But really, in 1 Corinthians 11, the context and the sin that Paul is addressing first and foremost is division in the church. When we come with divisions, he says we despise the church. And then he says some people have died because they take the Lord's Supper with sin. Think about what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 23 to 24. If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. Go first and be reconciled to your brother. And then come. And offer your gift. Get your heart right. Not just with God, but with your brother. Before you offer your gift. Unity in the church is a a, a premium. God wants us to live out that unity that already exists because of our union with Christ. In fact, it is so important that in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that Christians should not take fellow Christians to court. He says in verses 5 to 7, Is there no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to, to, to the court against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then he says this profound statement. Why not rather suffer wrong? And then he says, why not rather be defrauded? 
Every time I read that, that's a sobering line. I can overlook offenses, but to be defrauded? It's easy to say until we're the one that feels defrauded. But Paul says unity in the body is more important. Next, Paul addresses in verse 9 another issue at Ephesus. He says, likewise, still talking of public worship, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, there is nothing wrong in looking nice. But in Ephesus, women were coming to church dressed to bring attention to themselves. We gather to focus on Christ, to exalt him in worship, and to focus on him and his glory, not to compete with God for attention. Dress in respectable apparel, meaning a form of humility, which is proper for worship. Then he says, dress with modesty, and that that word modesty has some sexual overtones. Don't dress to show off, but rather dress with feminine reserve. And he says, dress in a way that shows self-control, meaning discretion. The point here is not that every woman has to wear a, a burlap sack. Isn't that what Lucy did? And I love Lucy. But ask yourself, and this isn't just for ladies, this could be for men, as Doug shows off his muscles. Who, just kidding, you don't have any muscles, Doug. <laughs> Who am I dressing for? It's not about fixing rules for lengths of skirts, but asking, is this appropriate? Does this serve the church? Will this cause someone to stumble? Why am I dressing the way that I do? There's some subjectivity to that, isn't there? We like rules. Your skirt can only be this long or that's easy. Then we all know what we're supposed to do. But the Bible calls us to think beyond just the rule and get to the heart. What is my motivation and why do I do the things that I do? And what is best for others and not just myself? 
How does the way I dress gather attention to myself rather than give attention to the glory of God in my life? How should women and and men dress? Verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When people look at you, are they more impressed with how you dress? or with the character of your life? What do you want to be known for? Verse 11. In verse 11, we begin to transition more specifically uh, to church structure. Uh, The first, uh, what I first said at the beginning is that Christ exercises his authority over our lives in and through the local church. So how does Christ exercise authority in the local church? Uh, Verse 11 and 12. And this is going to be very popular with the world. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. But I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Wow. That goes against the grain of culture. What do we do with that? Now, it does not mean that women have no place or part to play in the one another ministry of the local church. In Titus 2, 3, older women are to instruct younger women. And in Acts 18, it is both Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife, who instructed Apollos. What uh, what, what the author Luke says there is they, the two of them, took him, Apollos, aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Priscilla taught Apollos. 1 Corinthians 11 gives instructions on women praying and prophesying in the public gathering under the authority of the church. What our text is addressing is a particular kind of teaching, a particular place and time of teaching. Uh, What the Bible is teaching that elders are to be men, those that are examined and set apart and ordained to speak on behalf of God to his people in the weekly gathering of the church, what we do on Sunday morning. They are are the ones given the task to preach God's word with the authority of Christ that has been given to the church. 
Again, it's important to remember the context of Paul's command about women not teaching or exercising authority. He's talking about the, the corporate worship service of the church, which happens on Sunday. This text does not govern men and women in every situation, but applies to our weekly gathering as the church. Uh, The word teach there specifically means to exposit, to expound Scripture in the official teaching of sound doctrine. The word teach and authority in our text go together. Elders are the ones who have been given authority, and that authority is first and foremost exercised in the preaching of the word. As we'll look at elders in a little bit, there's, there's a number of different ways that elders uh, exercise authority in the church, but our primary authority, well, the source of our authority is God and his word. Even as we lead the church in other ways, besides preaching, uh, God and his word must govern us. And beyond this one biblical restriction, women are at liberty to use their spiritual gifts in whatever ways that God allows them to use them. In verses 11 and 12, women are to submit to the authority of the church by Learning, it says, quietly, meaning attentively and respectively. Uh, the NIV uh, does not say quietly. Uh, anybody have the NIV? It says uh, silently. Is that what you're... Oh, quietly. Okay, cool. Uh, some, well, I'll say some translations or an older NIV uh, would say silently, and that's, that misses the mark. Uh, The problem is that submission has become a dirty word. Even even as we say it, we bristle a little bit, don't we? No one can tell me what to do. But we are not submitting to men. We are submitting to the church. And by submitting to the church, we are submitting to God himself. Elders are not infallible but they function in an office with the authority of Christ himself that he gave to the local church. We don't have to agree with everything an elder says or teaches or every decision a church makes. But we need to listen and seek to learn respectively and wherever we can to come under that authority. Submission isn't just something, this is what you have to do. You have to submit. Really, submission is something we all have to do. Even even your elders have to submit to one another. And I've, and I've, I've used this story before, and, but it, I think it's a good one, so I'll use it again. Um, Believe it or not, we don't always agree. 
and maybe each of us feels this way, but it, it seems like they all disagree with me more than they do with anybody else. Is that true, Pat, or do you feel that way too? Yes, it's true. <laughs> I thought I was just being paranoid. It's actually true. <laughs> I feel offended. I can remember a decision that was made. And just one of many, but on this particular occasion, uh, thinking, no, no, that's, that's, no, that's wrong. And most of the time, you, you know, you, you think that way, and then you go on with your day, and it is what it is. This one bothered me more than the, the others bother me, because they all do. Um, because... Isn't it hard to believe that anyone could disagree with me? Isn't that hard? Don't we all feel that way? How can anyone disagree with me? I'm so right. But on this occasion, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, still thinking about this decision that was made by the other guys. I tossed and turned in bed for two or three hours. I couldn't get back to sleep. It bothered me that much. And it, it, it seemed as though God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but it was a series of thoughts. Eric, do you believe that God exercises his authority in the church through elders? Yes, I do. then you're not trusting their judgment. You're trusting me. And that doesn't mean they were right. I don't exactly remember what the issue was fully, but my guess is if someone reminded me, I'd still think they were wrong. But God, God superintends all of that, doesn't he? It's not about being right or wrong. It's about trusting what God is doing. And it's coming to realize, you know what? God could open their eyes to see things the way I see them. And as of yet, in this moment, about this issue, he hasn't. And so what am I to do? Submit. I submit to my elders because I submit to my church. And by submitting to my church, I submit to God. And that's what it means to entrust yourself to God. Lord, I, I, you know, I don't know what those guys are doing. But I'm trusting you. That you are leading our church. And you're going to make something beautiful out of all of this. Once a decision is made, I'm called to submit. Doesn't mean I don't get to bring it up again, and sometimes I do. I'd like to talk about X again. <laughs> so what's the, the biblical rationale uh, for women not exercising authority and teaching as elders in the church? 
We see it in verses 13 to 14. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It's a two-pronged reason, and and they're related to one another. The first reason is rooted in creation. Adam was created first. He is the vice regent of God. He was to exercise authority under God over the creation. He, along with Eve, who corresponded to him and was a helper to him, was to rule the creation under God. Creational order is that man would lead the creation, which is the same reason God makes men leaders of their homes. In Ephesians 5, wives what? Submit to your husbands as what? Unto the Lord. You're not just submitting to him, you're submitting to God. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Both giving up themselves for the sake of the other. Wives submitting, husbands loving and leading. This is how the family is structured, which is really the basic building block of society. Husbands and fathers discipling their families to love and obey God. And the family is the microcosm of the church. Men as elders discipling a spiritual family to love and obey God. That's the, that's the first reason. The second reason is related, and it's rooted not in the creation, but in the fall. Adam was our covenant representative in the covenant of creation. Adam's sin is what is imputed to us. And it's why we are born children of wrath under the condemnation of sin. In Romans 5, uh, Paul tells us that we are either in Adam under condemnation or, or in Christ. We're either in the covenant of creation, a covenant of works in Adam, and in him we all sinned. Or we're in the covenant of grace in Christ who obeyed and died for us. In Romans 5.19, it says, By the one man's disobedience, meaning Adam's, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, Christ, the many will be made righteous. Eve was deceived, as our text says, by Satan. But Adam abdicated his God-given authority by passively watching it happen. Eve incorrectly assumed authority by listening to Satan rather than God, and Adam did not intervene. But verse 15, yet women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The ESV does not make this clear, but Uh, The word childbearing there is a definitive, meaning there's the word the before it. 
it, it, I, I don't know why they don't make this clear. It, it shouldn't say yet women will be saved through childbearing. Like, well, uh, you can have kids at least. Yay. Um, and that's a, that's a wonderful thing. A godly mother is a gift from God. But it says women are saved through the childbearing. Meaning that the child, what is the childbearing? Speaking of a specific child that is born, what child? Christ. It's through the childbearing, Mary giving birth to Christ, that women are saved. It's not simply women are mothers. It says more than that. There would be no salvation, no incarnated Christ who is our Savior without women. And so they're a wonderful part of God's plan for salvation for us. So, if the local church has been delegated authority by the risen Christ to shape our Christian life together, how is that authority exercised? It is exercised through the plurality, the multiple elders in the local church. No elder has authority in himself. As much as I would like to rule the world, I have no authority in my person. My authority rests in an office that I presently hold. I am an elder. The moment I am no longer an elder, then I no longer have authority other than the authority the elders of my church may delegate to me to be a small group leader or a science school teacher or whatever ministry area you're in. That's delegated authority from the elders. So what kind of man can be an elder? Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and uh, just a side note, the word overseer, pastor, pastor, elder are all sort of interchangeable in the New Testament. They mean the same thing, and they refer to the same office. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The first prerequisite to be an elder is that you want to be an elder. Not for oneself, but for the sake of those he will pastor in his church. If a man doesn't want that responsibility of leading the church, then he should not become an elder. Growing up, I did not want to be a pastor. It was the last thing on earth I wanted to do. I I distinctly recall... Uh, the very first time that God began to deal with me, and I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm just, I'm not, no, I'm not doing it. And God took a long process to change my heart uh, so that it was something uh, 
I wanted to do. And I knew he wanted me to do. But desire itself is not enough. An elder needs the spiritual maturity, the temperament, and the gifts to be an elder. The list of requirements in uh, uh, verses 2 to 7 of chapter 3 are almost entirely about an elder's character. What kind of man is he? Does he reflect Christ in his life? And that's why in verse 6 it says, an elder must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There is a host of of opportunities for pride and self-serving that surround an elder. I get lots of pats on the back. And I, I remember, I remember uh, the first few times I started to teach on Wednesday nights. I just began to get in the habit. Because, you know, everyone's, I, I don't know if I was any good, but, um, you know, people want to come up and they want to encourage, oh, that was really good. And just from the beginning, I didn't, I didn't want to think about it. Because if you think about it too much, yeah, I was pretty good, wasn't I? I just began to say, thank you. I hope God used it. To reflect or deflect thoughts about self. It's easy to become self-serving when you have authority. And so the character of an elder is of the utmost importance. An elder must be an example of what it looks like to follow Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And so an elder must be a Christian long enough to see him grow in godliness, not over the course of months, but years. It's a sobering call. I, I remember uh, working through this text in a class in seminary and thinking, no, I should not, I should not be here. Because I know my sins. I know my struggles. But an elder isn't a perfect man, but a man growing in repentance and godliness, one willing to confess and turn from sin character here is the primary requirement for an elder but there there is one skill he must possess and that he must be growing in verse two he must be able to teach so what are the requirements of an elder character christian character maturity and the ability to teach some are better teachers than others but can uh can a man be willing to spend the time to study God's word and then try to make it clear to the people so they can live it out. Um, but when I, when I preach, number one goal. And that's, that's how I judge myself. Was it clear? Um, charisma. Dynamic leadership, those are wonderful things and they can help. But, is he a man of God who is growing into the image of Christ and is he able to teach? 
this process of self-examination, this is going to sound like an oxymoronic statement, this self-examination should not be done simply by oneself, but rather in the context of the local church. A potential elder or an elder candidate places his life before the existing elders of his church to determine if he is fit and ready for office. It is not a solo enterprise. I remember years ago, uh, a young man who was part of our church for a very short time at a men's retreat was telling me that he was going to be a pastor. And so we began to talk some, and, and it was clear that he, he, he just made up his mind. That's what he was going to do, and it doesn't matter what anyone else thought. A man should not be an elder if his church does not affirm that call in his life. In just to give you how we do it in Sovereign Grace, in Sovereign Grace, it is the local church that first identifies and develops men to be elders. And we do that by giving opportunities to teach, to lead, and to shepherd God's people. But it doesn't end with us. It then moves into the region, the area of the northeast area, there's about 11 churches that we meet together. An elder candidate in Sovereign Grace must write uh, several position papers, submit a sermon, take a three-hour Bible knowledge exam. It's almost like Bible trivia. Um, That's what it is. Uh, Do you know the Bible? Do you know where this stuff is found? I... (laughs) Uh, when we joined Sovereign Grace, I had to go through the process. I remember look, the first question on the, on the exam, whatever it was, I remember thinking to myself, you've got to be crazy. I, don't have, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I figured it out. And I passed, so. Uh, he takes two four-hour theology exams. And then he appears before the regional ordination committee for a practical interview. After he passes all of that, and sometimes that takes a while, he then has to be voted on by elders in the region before he's ordained and installed as an elder. We're not trying to create hoops for men to jump through, but creating a process to ensure the health of our churches, that men are qualified and trained to be Elders, we have five minutes. That was my alarm. And I have one page, so we're, we're, we're going to be okay. It is a daunting and humbling process. I, I'm, a, I'm a member of the Regional Ordination Committee. I just started a couple of months ago. And I've had to uh, grade men's theology exams and deal with them honestly on where they're strong and where they are weak and where they need to study more. Uh, And that's part of our responsibility as a church to ensure the future of churches in our area. God has given the elders, the elders are the ones that have the ministry of the word. We lead, teach, and guard the church. Elders lead the church. In other words, we set direction 
for the church. The Bible gives us a, a picture of what the church should look like. It's up to elders to decide, okay, how, how, do, how do we get from here to what, that, what the Bible shows us we should be? What's the best way in this time and this place for this church to achieve that biblical picture? Elders teach the church, meaning we equip the saints for the work of ministry so that together we grow into the image of Christ. And elders guard the church, preaching the word so the church is not deceived by false teachers and doctrines. Paul tells Timothy and all elders in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the Bible, the ministry of the word, is the primary responsibility of elders. This biblical mandate is of such great importance that it gave rise to the second office in the church, deacon. In Acts 6, uh, men were appointed to oversee the distribution of food to widows in the church to ensure care, temporal, physical care for the most vulnerable. They were to ensure, these deacons were to ensure the care was being provided to these women. In Acts 6, to it, the, 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 the apostles, the elders said, it is not right that we give up preaching the word of God to serve to deacon tables. Therefore, pick out from among yourselves seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will, we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Elders, pastors are responsible to shepherd the whole flock of God entrusted to them, including the most vulnerable. Serving the most vulnerable, serving tables, wasn't beneath the elders. But the ministry of the word and prayer was so important. that God gave to the church deacons to be responsible for the ministry of care in the life of the church. It was too much for the elders to do both. And so deacons function under the leadership of the elders to care for the physical welfare of church members. They're not doing all the work themselves, but they're organizing us to do the work. Deacons and their ministry of care enable elders to focus on our primary task of ministry of the word and prayer. Deacons work alongside elders to ensure a gospel-centered ministry in the church of both word and deed. Elders and deacons work together in complementary offices in shepherding the local church. All Christians are called to be people of the word and prayer. But elders have the official responsibility to lead, teach, and guard the church in its doctrine. Likewise, all Christians are called to be servants of Christ, caring for each other in the life of the church. But deacons are the official church coordinators of benevolence to its members. The qualifications for deacons and elders in 1 Timothy 3 
emphasize spiritual maturity and character of both. Really, the major difference between elders and deacons is that deacons don't have to be able to teach. Deacons can. Uh, Two of the early deacons, Stephen and Philip, were also teachers. But being able to teach is not a requirement to be a deacon, and it's not a function of that office, even if they have those gifts. The function is to administer care. God established two offices for every church in every age and in every place, elders and deacons. Those offices should reflect what the church should do in every place and every time that the church has existed. And what is the church to do? Preach the word and care for the people. So that determines what those offices do. Deacon, like elder, is a church-wide office, not simply exercising leadership over a segment of church life. Deacons are part of the shepherding of the whole church, but they focus on the weak and the vulnerable. And they coordinate a church-wide response to provide intentional care. And just the, what the deacons just announced a few weeks ago, just helping people who have, uh, who care for special needs individuals. It's almost a silent group that's overlooked so easily. I think it was Kyle and Frank that uh, brought it up. Uh, There was a woman who was caring for her husband, hadn't been in church since before COVID, I think, uh, because there was no one to help. Unfortunately, she could watch online, but that's, that's not the same. Let's face it. We all, we all did that. That's not the same as being here. So how do we help her so that she can be here more regularly? Elders teach and exercise leadership over the whole church in a similar way. Deacons exercise and coordinate benevolence over the whole of church life.